am Aussie. I always will be Aussie. I always have been Aussie. I've always tried to be sort of something different. I mean, everybody's seen the guy go home with the skin-tight pants and wiggle his butt and whatever in stage. I must be crazy, you know. Because, I mean, I, I think of the most macabre junk. I think I'm the, I'm the rock and roll rebel that everybody's mother likes to hate, you know. Hey, what's going on? Welcome to Sabbath Bloody Podcast. You love a madman. That's right. My name is Rye, and uh, yeah, here we are. Well into August now. All my vacations are done. It's back to the grind. And that, my friends, is the ultimate sin of life. Today we're going into 1985, a better day, with Ozzy Osbourne. And uh, yeah, we're going to get working on a new album here with Jakey Lee, so hang tight. Just got to give a shout out first to the network. (laughs) Of course, those ultimate sinners over at Deep Purple Podcast. You know how they roll. Keeping that content going week after week after week. They've done a lot of episodes recently because of the release of uh, the new Deep Purple album over there. So that's cool. Then you got my man, the simple man. Over at Skinner Reconsidered and T-Bone Mathley at T-Bone's Prime Cuts. The fucking network, people. Fucking phenomenal. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Alright, let's get into 1985 then. <laughs> Coming off of the grand, debaucherous Bark at the Moon 83-84 tour with Ozzy coming out of a short stint at rehab there at the Betty Ford Clinic as well. There's actually one more gig with this lineup of Ozzy, Jake, Daisley, and Aldrich. And it's a big one too, so get your carnival gear on, Ozzy, because we're rocking Rio. January 19th, 1985, the first edition of this now iconic Brazilian rock festival. Ozzy was as fresh as a daisy out of... Betty's house, ready to go on to the big stage, clean and sober, right? Well, no. Here's an excerpt from his book here, I Am Ozzy, where he actually comes clean about not getting clean at all at Betty Ford. (laughs) The first gig I did after Betty Ford was Rio de Janeiro. I was legless before I even got on the plane. By the time we reached Rio, I'd gone through a whole bottle of Cavazier, and I was passed out in the aisle. Sharon tried her best to move me, but I was like a dead fucking body. In the end, she got so pissed off with me that she grabbed the stainless steel fork from her meal tray and began stabbing me with it. I knew where I was, a full-blown practicing alcoholic. I couldn't pretend anymore that I was just having fun or that boozing was something everyone did when they got a bit of dough. I had a disease and it was killing me. I used to think even an animal wouldn't go near something again if it made them sick. So why did I keep going back to this? So there you go. Obviously reflecting back there, at the time, I'm sure he just took the fork out of his leg and went back to the neck, <laughs> hitting that cavazier like a fucking fiend. He talks about the Rio gig here, too. Let me read on a bit in here. The gig was Rockin' Rio, a 10-day festival featuring Queen, Rod Stewart, ACDC, and Yes. One and a half million people bought tickets, but I was disappointed by the place. I'd expected to see the girl from Impanina at every corner, but I never saw a single one. There was just all these dirt-poor kids running around like rats. People were either outrageously rich or living on the streets. There didn't seem to be anything in between. 
All right, so there you go. That's Ozzy's impression of South America. Not my personal opinion, if anyone takes offense to that. All right, stage is set. Let's look back at the set lists from Ozzy and Rio. As well, Ozzy actually plays two nights there, it seems. I think it may be the same set list, though. He really changes things up, even on a full tour. There's only one set list here, and I assume it's the same set list for both days, though. So on the Wednesday, they go on with Rod Stewart and what looks like a bunch of Brazilian acts here. Moraes Morira and Oz Palomas do Successo. I don't know how to say this. Sorry. My Spanish is terrible. No idea what that Wednesday is about there. And apologies for my shit Spanish. But the Saturday gig is a big show. And it was captured on film, too. I guess video at that point, right? We're well into the 80s now. So we'll drop in on one track from the set list here. Let's just see the set list here first. I don't know. Mr. Crowley. Bark at the moon. Over the mountain. This is all pretty similar stuff. Revelation Mother Earth. Steal Away the Night. Suicide Solution. Center of Eternity from Bark at the Moon. Flying High Again. Iron Man, Crazy Train, Paranoid. Okay, I know which one I'm going to pick here for the show today. Lighters up. We're going to go into a new track here from Bark at the Moon, the underrated. Journey to the center of eternity. Not the hottest sound quality there on this rip that I have, but it's a killer show. Be sure to watch it on YouTube, get the full effect and the scale of the show. Massive attendance at this one. The dirt poor masses, as Ozzy dubbed them there. Rock and Rio actually also turns out to be Tommy Aldrich's last show with Ozzy. So, shit, we need to make a big toast for Tommy, right? He's faked us out before, but now he's really taken off. What an absolute... Beast of a drummer, too. Really taking what Lee Kerslake started with to the next level. At least I think. His playing is awesome. He's probably... Well, he's one of my favorite Aussie drummers. My real favorites are yet to come. But Aldrich is definitely a stud up there in the top tier. I guess things got a little dicey at the end between him and Oz, though. As Ozzy mentions here in a sit-down interview he did with the great Mick Wall. It's time for a change, Tommy. Tommy and I are very good friends still. It's just that... Um, we just decided to do, do our own different things because Tommy's been around as long as I have and, you know, I think he, he was a bit frustrated in playing a lot of stuff that he didn't really want to play. So he moved on, you know. So who have you been using as a drummer on the album? Well, I've been using quite a few things because drummers are very difficult to find. You can, you can audition a drummer and say, yeah, you, you'll do. But then when, after a week or two, you, you find there's things wrong with them that you're not really... They've got, like, one set formula of work, you know. I'm, 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 I'm in the process of sort of elimination at the moment. I've got about three different drummers on so, so far. But I, I don't really want to 
uh, release any names at the moment because it's not fair to them and it's also not fair to the band. Okay. You know, until it's permanent, then, then I'll let the, the word out who it is. Ah, don't you worry, Ozzy. We'll release those names here on Podcast of a Madman. That's what we do. With the Rock and Rio officially closing the Bark of the Moon chapter of Ozzy's little diary here, Jake and Daisley, they start working on the next batch of songs. The crazy train pulls into the station for a minute here, too, to refuel, so... You know, it seems like it's been pretty non-stop so far, right? I mean, apart from a week here for rehab and a week there for the death of your fucking guitarist, Ozzy keeps the show on the road ever since going solo. He doesn't know what he's doing. All he knows is that he doesn't want to stop. <laughs> but here in 1985, we get a nice little breather. With Daisley and Jake already quite comfortable with writing with each other, the songs also start coming together despite the break in the action and also not even having a stable lineup. Before they could really start recording the demos and ideas that they had and shit, they needed to find that drummer, right? So another call was sent out to the LA pool again, as per usual. There are several drummers that do brief stints here before they finally settle on the next major member, that being the late, great Randy Castillo, as you probably already know. But to run through the others here, I have an article saved, which is actually an interview with Randy Castillo, speaking about the audition process here, because he kind of witnesses the whole ordeal. He himself was brought into these editions under the recommendation of Ozzy's new best buddy, Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. You remember him from last episode as well? Randy, at the time, he had just left Lita Ford's band, and he was also nursing a recently broken leg from a ski accident that he had. So hobbled and gigless. <laughs> Ozzy still wants to check him out as Tommy Lee gave him that ringing endorsement at a party or some shit. I'll dip into this article here, the initial drummer search in very early 1985 here. So I get to this place called Maiden's Rehearsal Place and there's a lineup of about 15 guys leading to the doorway. All drummers. I recognize about half of them. They were all LA hotshots. There was the likes of Fred Corey, Jimmy DeGrasso, Eric Singer, all standing there in this line. They're all holding drumsticks and playing on their leg and stuff. I get out of the car with crutches and casts and hobbled on over. Because of my leg, I couldn't use my right foot. They put two microphones on it and cranked it. I said, you guys have got to mic this really good, because I could barely hit the bass drum, man. It was just so painful. I could play with my hands, and I remember Jake E started playing this riff, which became the ultimate sin, the opening riff. He said, put a beat to this. So actually what I did was put the beat that ended up on the album. Ah, yes, the ultimate sin drum pattern. That's iconic, right? Side note from Rye here, actually, on that beat. Do you remember when Adele was all the rage and she had that song that started with the drums and the chanting? I can't remember the song's name, but every time I fucking heard it at like a pub or something, I always perked up thinking, wait, are they playing ultimate sin? I guess that's a tangent there, but maybe what I'll do is I'll put both the intros in side by side here in post just for shits and giggles. over the half hour mark on these shows taking switchbacks like that 
So anyway, Randy Castillo, even with one leg, he manages to leave a good impression on them. Eventually he's called back, and you probably already know this, but ultimately he is the ultimate sin drummer. <laughs> but the broken leg is still a deal breaker at this point, as Ozzy needs to crack on quickly and get the album actually happening. So a young kid who Randy mentioned from the lineup there that he saw, Fred Corey, he was the drummer who was first hired for these sessions, only 17 years old too. He was the drummer for an Ohio-based band called Chastine at the time. And Fred Corey would later go on to play with an underrated hair metal act called Cinderella. Who are fucking awesome. You should check them out if you're, you know, not into the hair metal but want to get into it. They're a great entry point. They're, they're fucking badass. And so this new foursome, they actually flew over to London and began work on the new album. Ozzy tends to fuck off again with Sharon and do other things while the real work is being done, but... Old Fred, Bob, and Jake. <laughs> this sounds like the fucking roll call at an auto mechanics company, not a rock band. But together, they lay down the groundwork for the new album's worth of recordings, the ideas that would ultimately become the ultimate sin. Word spreads fast, too, that this 17-year-old kid is the new drummer of Ozzy. As he briefly mentions in this clip here that I pulled out of one of his interviews, it's really the only thing he says about his tenure with Ozzy, but... Here it is. Circus Magazine wrote a story that I was the new drummer for Ozzy because I was like the runner-up. And I was in England doing pre-production for The Ultimate Sin. And that was when I was 17. So I just kind of hit newcomer. Fred Corey is, you know, the new drummer for Ozzy. So despite it making all the heavy metal rags that Corey was the official new drummer, he doesn't work out. I'm not sure what his story is, why he left, or even how far he got with the songs. He's never really questioned about it in the interviews, like I said. But by March of 1985, they fly in another drummer over the pond from L.A. And the guy that was in those audition sessions that were mentioned by Castillo. Future Megadeth alumni, that's where I saw him play live. Jimmy DeGrasso joins on. And DeGrasso actually cut some demos with Daisley and Jake, too. So... Let's bring in another Daisley D. And we'll keep the story moving here. What do you say, Bob? The record company asked us to demo, I think, four songs one weekend just to see what we had so far sort of thing, you know. Um, And we had a drummer at the time called Jim DeGrasso, and he came in with us, and and we we did the four songs. uh, and, And during that time, um, while we were writing in, in the rehearsal rooms and that, um, Ozzy didn't show up a lot of the time. You know, I don't know if he went off shopping with Sharon or whether he was hungover or what it was, but Jake and I were sort of putting the stuff together and I was writing some lyrics, just sort of makeshift stuff just to put together, just to record. Um, but Ozzy didn't show up a lot of the time. Some, some days he'd come in late, other times he didn't come in at all. And then at the weekend, we had just, you know, the, the two days to uh, record the four songs and mix them and make them sound decent enough to present to the record company. But Ozzy started getting stoned and drinking, and um, he, then he started wanting to make changes to the songs, and, and, and he was getting confused, and he was out of his head. And, and, I, and I, just, I just kind of lost it a bit with him. I said, Ozzy... You know, maybe you should have come to rehearsals if, if you, you know, if you're getting 
you know, if you're unhappy with parts of the songs or you want to start making changes or you've got second thoughts, you know, maybe you should have come to rehearsals with the rest of us and and worked on them. But uh, he didn't like that. And, th and then a bit later, we went out for something to eat. And he said something that pissed me off, and I called him an idiot. And he said, that's it, you can fuck <laughs> off and take that fucking Jake with you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what Jake had done, but he told me to fuck off and take Jake with me. But um, the next day, we went down to the rehearsal room, and then he didn't show up. And then the phone rang, and it was Ozzy, and he says to me, we can't work together anymore. And then, uh, I said, okay. So I went home. Oh, no. We lost him again. Daisley's out. No toast to him just yet, though, because like the Ozzy that he is, he's going <laughs> to he gonna boomerang his way back here soon enough, mate. <laughs> no worries. But with Daisley out, they also needed to find a new bass player. So this is when it gets kind of tricky in the timeline. <laughs> but I've got an interview here, a, a fantastic one, with a bassist who was recruited to fill in after Daisley had checked out. So... Around April, they go up north to Scotland. Uh, Jimmy DeGrasso is balanced at some point, too, in favor of their first choice, whom I've already talked about, Mr. Randy Castillo. By this point, his leg is all healed up, and he can take the gig proper, so they fly him on over to Scotland, and he joins the band proper. They set up camp in Inverness. With Daisley gone, the call for the new bass player goes out, like I said, and I've heard Sabbath legend and Scottish native, too. Neil Murray was in and out helping them around this time, working on the songs. But that could just be a rumor based on the fact that they were recording in Scotland. I mean, who knows? Neil, of course, ends up going over to the Sabbath camp in the 90s with Iommi, Powell, and Tony Martin, forming that great lineup, the tier lineup. But let's get a first-hand account here. Like I said, this kind of clears up the whole bass situation. Greg Chason, an absolutely killer player, one of my... All-time favorite bass players. He, of course, eventually pairs with Jake E and Ray Gillen in the Tremendous Badlands, one of my favorite bands. That's how I know him. But as I discovered when I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, other than the network affiliates, of course, but The Double Stop with Brian Sword, he did a great two-part sit-down with Greg Chase on here. And he speaks extensively on the Aussie bass slot fill-in here for Ultimate Sin. And as you will hear here... He was in there for a hot minute. Out of these 4,000 or some ridiculous number of tapes they got, they'd pick seven guys that they were interested in, and I was one of them. They rented a, a, a Scottish manor up by Inverness, Scotland. And she said, you're, we're actually going to fly you. You're just going to get on a plane right after you get off the plane in London at Heathrow and fly to Inverness. And I said, Inverness, isn't that by Loch Ness? And she said, yes, it is. I said, I'll come up there if someone will take me to Loch Ness so I can see the Loch Ness monster, maybe. She said, okay, done. So she actually agreed. You know, she should have just told me to take a flying leap. And I and she didn't. She, To her credit, she, so I, you know, so I flew up there, spent 21 days up there with them while they were doing that. I think I was the last bass player they had seen. And, um... They took me to Loch Ness, and I got to wander around Loch Ness for a day, and everyone else went other than Jake, and it was actually really cool, and I'd never been over there. I had a really good time, and uh, but Ozzy, as soon as he saw me, I just didn't have that look, and I, I didn't have it. I, I have to agree with their assessment. I didn't have that. 
eighties. You remember the outfits oh, yeah. everyone wore in the eighties? And you know, I it, uh, his exact words were, "He looks like Charles Bronson in The Mechanic." And I went, uh, "I never realized at that point that I was not nice enough looking to be in a rock band, but apparently that was going to be my my cross to bear." So they sent me home. Um, while they, they they weren't sure what they were going to do, and then Phil Susan came into the picture, who's a you know he's a good player and he's a nice looking guy, and he had a song. He had uh, "Shot in the Dark." That was his song. He brought it in, and so he got the gig. But I do know from um, you know the story always was whenever Phil Susan would piss Jake off, or uh, piss Ozzy off, Ozzy would say, "We should have kept the ugly guy." <laughs> <laughs> nice. Greg moves the story along well for us there. What a stud. Mentioning Phil Susan as well, a UK bass player that was brought in instead of him. And I got a date for his entry here, June 23rd, 1985. This is Phil's birthday, actually. He was told that he had the job and that Greg was out. And Jake really got on well with Greg, though, so those two keep in touch. And as Greg alluded, the main reason that Phil is picked over him was the look as mentioned, and also the song, Shot in the Dark, a song that goes on to be the big single from Ultimate Sin as well. Aussie classic, really. So so the lineup's shaping up well here. As much as I would have liked to have Greg, Phil is a fucking goddamn beast on the bass, too. And he was rocking a pick with this stuff, which is a tone that I love, and Aussie, too. One of the things he didn't like about Greg, actually, was that he played with his fingers. (laughs) It's, It's kind of funny. Like these little things that Ozzy picks up on and harps on musicians for. It's all based on the Blizzard of Oz memories, I think. Because honestly, you wouldn't think Ozzy would give a fuck about a bassist playing with his fingers or a pick. But he does. He mentions it. And I think that's because Daisley used a pick. And even with the guitarist, too. He would bust on Jakey and I think Bernie Torme or one of those other guys playing a Strat. And he'd say, why are you not playing a Gibson? <laughs> And that's probably because of Randy. I mean, I'm putting two and two together. Iomi also used Gibsons, but I don't know. It's just something that I've noticed in interviews. Ozzy has a type when it comes to the musicians he wants in his band. So meanwhile, as the songs are coming together, Sharon was trying to get Ozzy a slot on the recently announced massive concert event of 1985. And through some wheeling and dealing, in early summer, it was announced that the original lineup, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, and even Bill Ward, yes, they would team up with Ozzy Osbourne and be performing together for what would become one of the biggest events in history, Live Aid, Black Sabbath, (laughs) together for the first time since 78, fucking seven years then, right? Televised, live to the world, and it's... Really just a shit one-off performance, to be honest. Sounds cooler than it was. The band, as it appeared on TV, was billed as Black Sabbath featuring Ozzy Osbourne, too. And this was apparently at the request of Sharon's papa, Don Arden, who had attempted to kind of shut down the whole thing when Sharon was organizing it. He caught wind of it, serving Ozzy a writ, actually, days before his appearance, forbidding him to perform under the name Black Sabbath. But really, like... Being billed the way it was was kind of a blessing in disguise for Ozzy. I mean, he had a solo name happening, and it saying featuring Ozzy Osbourne is just giving that a big rub. 
by all reports that I've read, the whole Live Aid appearance, it was really a product of Sharon hustling to get Ozzy onto Live Aid by himself, but she didn't have the pull to get him on solo, but a Sabbath reunion would give them the slot naturally. And with the lads all wanting to give it a go anyway after Ian Gillen had left and you know the Born Again cycle had run out, just for the crack of playing with Ozzy once again, they went ahead despite Don Arden's cease and desist notice there. This whole appearance definitely opened up some wounds in the Arden family feud that had kind of cooled down a little bit since the speak of the devil times and all that back and forth fuckery. Either way, this was a one-night-only event, and like I said, it was pretty shit. But let's <laughs> drop in on a little Live Aid Sabbath here. you go for a brief moment in 1985 we had the og sabbath back together the sabs four as i called them but it was that just a brief moment was kind of done with sabbath at this point as you can hear in some of his interviews he doesn't necessarily speak that highly of his time in sabbath i heard that uh, black sabbath with you might come back into a world tour as a like <laughs> a farewell again. it's like every week as i was it's like every week, somebody or other says, are you getting back together again? And let me tell you, like, the, the idea of it is a fabulous idea, but I honestly don't think it would ever work out because I think people would rather remember Sabbath as they were. And I don't, I, the, the, the funny thing about it is, I don't know whether we all could gel, I don't know whether we all could come out with some good music, because I don't care who you are, if you get back together and you don't put out a good record, it's, it's nothing. And I, I gave that band 11 years of my life I'm doing quite well on my own. I'm happy on my own. If it works out, maybe it will. I'm up for anything. I mean, I'm not saying yes, and I'm not saying no, but I'm not getting myself excited about it. If it works, it works. If it don't, it don't. Do you still see Tony Iommi or Gibbs about that? I speak social level. My wife's uh, very, very close, a good friend of Terry Butler's wife, and they speak quite often. And he's, apparently he's doing a solo album at the moment, um, Terry is. And I, I don't, I, I very, very I speak to Tony very little, and even less to Bill. So, I think Bill is as crazy, <laughs> worse than me, Billy. But um, the thing about Black Sabbath, who knows? I mean, I, when I went to see Deep Purple, and I was kind of disappointed in the respect that I remembered Deep Purple when mm. they were fabulous and nice mm. to get everybody going, and that didn't look. It didn't have the same thing. It's like when you go on a holiday and you have a great time and you think, oh, we'll go back there in four years' time. And you think, what, what's happened to it, you know? Mm. That's the feeling I got when I saw them. Yeah. I thought they all played great and Gillen sang great, you know? It just didn't have the same impact. How did you, how did you rate Sabbath when Gillen was in the band? I never saw them. I never heard anything from them. And the, I the day I left Sabbath, I've never picked up a record since of theirs. Really? Because it's just, 
We left. We didn't leave on very friendly terms at the beginning, but you know, it's a lot of water going under the bridge since then. Okay. For shame, Ozzy. You gotta get born again. <laughs> I get that you were sour on Dio and stuff, but born again is the shit. <laughs> With all the speculation around a full Sabbath reunion at this time, things kind of stall out for the rest of the year. Eventually, Ozzy returns to his own base camp and starts putting the finishing touches on the ultimate sin. He even gets Bob Daisley back to write the lyrics even after their little fallout. Bob's still in the fold. He writes all the lyrics for the songs that him and Jake came up with. And so those tracks, combined with Phil's Shot in the Dark offering, make up the track list for this this pretty underrated and often forgotten gem in the Aussie catalog. But anyway, the actual release of The Ultimate Sin isn't until next year, so... We'll talk about that all next week. I guess I'm ready to just kind of sign off here for the week. Be sure to get in touch with me. Email me at sabbathbloodypodcast at gmail.com and on the Twitter at sabbathbloodypc because... Leave that review, son. Five stars on Apple Podcasts. All right, I'm getting out of here. I will see you on the other side.